Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-16, Akbar and Religion. This will be the final episode of this season. Before we get into this episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Akbar becomes the Mughal emperor in 1556 when his father dies. By 1570, Akbar has neutralized most of his Rajput enemies through either marriage or warfare. Akbar is heavily influenced by Sufism, making annual trips to the tomb of a Sufi mystic. He is also successful in his conquest of Gujarat in 1573 and Bengal in 1576. And with that, let's discuss Akbar's strange take on religion. Dini Ilahi Akbar was always interested in religion and was a practicing Sunni Muslim until 1578. He built a place called the Ibadat Khana in Fatipur Sikri, which was a meeting house where he would discuss religion with Islamic scholars. These meetings usually happened on Thursday evenings after Salatul Maghrib or the sunset prayer. Akbar would often invite Muslim scholars from different schools of thought, perhaps because he wanted to gain a deeper understanding of Islam or perhaps he wanted to reconcile doctrinal differences. He even encouraged the different scholars to debate each other, but these debates sometimes got heated and the scholars would end up shouting and calling each other names, which Akbar didn't like. In 1579, he passed a decree called the Mazhar, which made him the final authority on religion and also limited the power of the scholarly class. Akbar the Great was a bit controversial when it came to religion. A lot of people, including liberals, secularists, and non-Muslims, really like him because he instituted a lot of pro-Hindu policies. For instance, several notable Hindus worked in Akbar's administration, such as Raja Todarmal, finance minister, Raja Barmal, father-in-law and highest-ranking general, Raja Bhagwan Das, brother-in-law, general, and member of the court and Raja Manasingh, high-ranking general and member of the court. Akbar even made sure that Hindus made up half of his military forces. He also banned the practice of sati, where a widow was expected to jump on the burning corpse of her husband and be cremated alive. But a lot of conservative Muslims really hated Akbar. They didn't like that he adopted policies that weren't in line with Islam and that he seemed more concerned with pleasing non-Muslims than Muslims. The following excerpt comes from an article entitled Suli Kul and the Religious Ideas of Akbar written by M. Athar Ali and M. Akhtar Ali for the 1980 Proceedings of the Indian History Congress. This passage shows Akbar's overall religious ideology. On reading the Akbar Nama and the Aini Akbar, one realizes immediately that Akbar wished to assert his very strong belief in God, but his concept of the way God is to be worshipped was independent of either Orthodox Islam or Hinduism. 
As the happy saying set out in the Ain show, he believed, as did the Sufis, that God is to be grasped and worshipped by different men according to the limitations of their knowledge. God was formless and could not be grasped in any form except by the greatest effort of the mind. To worship such a one, physical action and prayer was suitable only for the unawakened ones. Otherwise, worship could only be an act of the heart. Elsewhere, Akbar is said to have held that the real act of worship is to have an illuminated heart that loves light. Akbar, therefore, deprecated both the image worship of the Hindus and the prayer ritual of the Muslims. His deprecation of image worship is particularly borne upon us when the author of the Akbar Nama styles Todar Mal a simple one, because he mourned the loss of the idols he used to worship. It goes on to call him a blind follower of custom and narrow-mindedness. For the benefit of this celebrated minister, Akbar also sermonized to the effect that no worship of God is superior to looking after the weak. Unquote. This shows us that, from an Islamic perspective, Akbar had a very unorthodox view of Allah. He even went so far as to create his own religion. Let's talk about that. By the early 1580s, Akbar has started having doubts about Islam. He stopped sending money to Mecca and Medina, and he ceased his annual pilgrimage to Ajmar and Rajasthan, which we discussed in the previous episode. He began learning about other religions and invited scholars from different faiths, like Hindus, Jains, Buddhists, and Jews to the Ibadat Khana. The first Portuguese Jesuits also visited him in 1580 after he met them during the Gujarat campaign, also discussed in the previous episode. More Jesuits came to visit him later, including Rodolfo Aquaviva, Antonia Montserrat, and Francis Henriquez, who was a Persian convert to Christianity and acted as a translator. Akbar referred to them as Nazarene sages and was very fond of them, often inviting them to sit next to him and giving them food from the royal table. He even allowed them to build an altar in his palace, appointed them as tutors for his son, and allowed them to perform conversions. However, after some time, the priests started taking too many liberties and insulting the Muslim scholars in the capital, as well as insulting Islam itself. Akbar eventually ordered them to stop. There is a portrait in the Akbar Nama, that's the official Mughal biography of Akbar, showing him in discussion with a couple of Jesuit priests. The scene takes place outside, apparently in a palace courtyard. A full moon glows in the distance against a night sky. Akbar is the center of attention, and he sits cross-legged and barefoot on a covered couch. He's wearing a yellow robe with an orange turban. Akbar does not have a beard in this picture, and this will make sense later on. To his left are several servants. One of the servants stands slightly behind Akbar, fanning him. Two young boys stand just to the side, waiting in attendance. Gathered before Akbar are several Muslim scholars. Most of them are holding books, presumably about different aspects of Islamic theology. At first glance, these books appear to be copies of the Quran, but since some of them are laying on the ground, this is unlikely. All but one of the Muslim scholars have full beards. In the middle of the gathering is what appears to be a larger book on a platform with a scroll of paper. This 
is most likely the Quran. To Akbar's right are two Jesuit priests, one of them holding an open Bible. Both priests are dressed in black. Since everyone else in the picture is wearing brightly covered clothing, these priests make a striking contrast. Sitting between the Jesuits and Akbar are two non-European men. Both have handlebar mustaches, but no beards. Most likely, they are not Muslim. One of these men, obviously a translator, is talking to Akbar. This picture gives us an interesting view of Akbar that goes beyond the image of a ruthless warrior and conqueror. After a few years of having open discussions with scholars of different religions, Akbar tried to solve all religious conflict by announcing a new religion called Dini Ilahi, which means the religion of God. It was supposed to be a mixture of all religions, and because of this, it was hated by all religions and gained very few followers. Akbar is quoted as saying the following, quote, we ought to bring the different religions of India into one, but in such a fashion that they be one and all, with the greatest advantage of taking what is good in every creed and discarding the remainder. In this way, honor will be done to God, peace and prosperity will be restored to the people, and security to the empire. Unquote. This new religion died out with Akbar. Some people say that it was vaguely based around worshipping the emperor, although Akbar supporters deny this accusation. I'll let you come to your own conclusion. John F. Richards provides a description of this new religion in his book, The Mughal Empire. Quote, Drawing upon the newly articulated imperial idiom, Akbar and his advisors devise an esoteric means to bind leading nobles to him. In part, this appeal emerged naturally from Akbar's own intense spiritual quest that found its fullest expression at Fatipur Sikri. In the early 1580s, the emperor began openly to worship the sun by a set of rituals of his own invention. Four times a day, he faced the east and prostrated himself before a sacred fire. Simultaneously, Akbar engaged in abstinence from excessive meat-eating, sexual intercourse, and alcohol consumption. These were all rites and practices much in evidence in the daily world of Hinduism in North India. Worship of the sun and moon with its images of light was easily compatible with the myths of origin and descent central to the ethos of his Rajput nobles. Shortly thereafter, the emperor began to enlist selected members of the nobility as his disciples in association with the worship of sun and light. At noon on Sundays before the sacred fire, the emperor presided over an initiation ceremony. Groups of twelve neophytes entered the body of disciples on these occasions. Each initiate swore to accept four degrees of devotion to Akbar, the unhesitating willingness to sacrifice one's life, Jan, property, mal, religion, deen, and honor, namus, in the service of the master, that is, Akbar. Muslim initiates signed a declaration agreeing to repudiate the bonds of Orthodox Islam and to worship Allah directly, without intermediaries. Throughout the ceremony, the neophyte placed his head on Akbar's feet in an extreme form of prostration known as sejda. At the close of the ceremony, Akbar raised up each supplicant, placed a new turban upon his head, and gave him a symbolic representation of the sun embossed on a medallion. 
Each new disciple also received a tiny portrait of Akbar to wear upon his turban, as well as a set of pearl earrings crafted for the occasion. Unquote. The greeting in this new faith was, get this, Allahu Akbar. Now we know this is a common phrase used by Muslims all over the world. However, if it is pronounced in a certain way, it could mean, Akbar is God in Urdu. After establishing his new religion, it seemed like Akbar started turning against Islam. He kept pigs in the palace. He banned the consumption of beef. He discouraged men from wearing beards. In fact, most pictures of Akbar show him without a beard. Now, I told you this would make sense later on. He prohibited circumcision before the age of 12. He abolished the Adhan and public prayers. He discouraged or discontinued Hajj and fasting. And he even changed Muslim names to Indian names. Now let's be clear. Most of these rules were never fully enforced. Most historians believe Akbar only passed them to please his Hindu wives and relatives. It seems like Akbar cared more about maintaining his political alliances than about upholding Islamic purity. The Jesuits eventually gave up trying to convert Akbar to Christianity, but they wrote extensively about him and his court later in life. When Akbar asked them to send more priests, they agreed. These new priests also kept trying to convert Akbar and his family. In 1610, during Jahangir's reign, some of Akbar's grandsons were even baptized. However, the priests later realized that their main purpose was to get close to Christian women. The Jesuits later admitted that these Mughal princes returned to Islam. Meanwhile, there was growing resistance among the Muslims to Akbar's behavior, and several Islamic scholars in the empire declared him a murtad, apostate, and called for the people to rise up against this impious ruler. The Bengal Revolts It wasn't long before some groups decided to act on the call to revolt against Akbar. The first group to do so were the Chagatais of Bengal in 1582. These were Akbar's own people, led by a man named Baba Khan Kashgal. Akbar sent Raja Todarmal and Aziz Koka to suppress the revolt, which they eventually did. However, a lot of Muslims were still unhappy and called on Akbar's brother, Mirza Hakim, the ruler of Kabul, to revolt against him. In 1581, Mirza Hakim invaded Punjab, but Akbar defeated him and chased him all the way back to Kabul. Akbar could have taken Kabul if he wanted to, but he decided to show mercy to his brother and allowed him to retain control of the city. When Mirza Hakim died in 1585, Akbar annexed all of Kabul. Also in 1581, a Bengali Muslim chieftain named Isa Khan declared himself the ruler of southern Bengal and began expanding and fortifying his territory. He was supported by 12 Bengali chieftains who had previously been governors in Bengal before it was annexed by the Mughals. Isa Khan used the Chagatai revolt in 1582 to expand even further and establish his capital at Kachrabo in modern central Bangladesh. 
Ralph Fitch was a British explorer and merchant who traveled to India, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East in the late 16th century. He is one of the first Englishmen to visit India and write about his experiences there. Here's a quote from Ralph Fitch describing the rebellion in Bengal. Quote, they be all hereabouts rebels against the king Jalaluddin Akbar, for here are so many rivers and islands that they flee from one to another, whereby his horsemen cannot prevail against them. The chief king of these countries is Isa Khan, and he is the chief of all the other kings, and is a great friend to all Christians. Unquote. The other kings Fitch mentioned were likely the twelve chieftains that supported Isa Khan. In Bengali, they are referred to as the Barabuyan. In September 1584, Isa Khan defeated the Mughals in a naval battle which allowed him to rule the eastern Ganges Delta region for the next 15 years. In 1594, Akbar appointed Raja Man Singh as the governor of Bengal and established his capital at Rajmahal on the Ganges Delta. However, in August 1597, Isa Khan joined forces with a Mughal rebel named Masum Khan Kabuli and defeated the Mughals in another naval battle. Raja Man Singh's son was killed in the fighting. Isa Khan died in 1599, but the Bengal resistance continued well into Jahangir's reign. Kashmir and the Deccan Kashmir is a region in northern India and eastern Pakistan. Situated in the Himalayan mountain range, it is bordered by India, Pakistan, and China. Kashmir is known for its natural beauty and has a long history of human habitation. The region has been fought over by various empires and dynasties throughout history, and it has always been a center of cultural exchange due to its location on the Silk Road. Kashmir has a varied topography, with the western part being dominated by the Karakoram and the eastern part by the Himalayas. The landscape of Kashmir includes mountains, valleys, lakes, and rivers. The Kashmir region has a cold and dry climate, with temperatures ranging from very cold in the winter to warm in the summer. The main rivers in Kashmir are the Jhelum, the Chenab, and the Indus. Kashmir is also home to several lakes, including the Dal Lake and the Bular Lake. Kashmir is predominantly Muslim, but it also has a significant Hindu population. In modern times, the region has been the subject of a dispute between India and Pakistan, with both countries claiming sovereignty over it. The conflict has resulted in violence and human rights abuses, and it remains a contentious issue to this day. Akbar, always looking to expand his empire, sent two armies into Kashmir in 1586. The first army was led by Raja Bhagwan Das, who ended up signing a peace treaty with the ruler of Kashmir, Yusuf Shah. However, Akbar wasn't satisfied with this outcome, so he sent another army, which forced Yusuf Shah to surrender. Yusuf Shah and his son became members of the imperial court. Akbar himself visited Kashmir in 1589, and it became the summer capital for the Mughals. The Deccan Campaign 
The Deccan is a region in southern India that is surrounded by the western ghats to the west and the eastern ghats to the east. It has a dry, hot climate with cool winters and is known for its fertile black soil that is suitable for growing crops like rice, wheat, and millet. The Deccan has a rich history and was home to several ancient empires and kingdoms such as the Maurya Empire, the Satavahana Dynasty, the Chalukya Dynasty, and of course, the Deccan Sultanates. It is culturally diverse with a variety of languages like Telugu, Tamil, Kannada, and Marathi. The Deccan has always been an important center of trade and commerce because of its location on the Indian subcontinent. In the early 1590s, Akbar turned his attention south and sent emissaries to the four Deccan sultanates, demanding they acknowledge his supremacy. The Deccan sultans avoided giving a direct answer for as long as possible. However, in 1595, Ibrahim Nizam Shah, sultan of the Nizam Shahi dynasty and ruler of the Ahmadagar Sultanate, died in battle. This caused a disagreement among the nobles about who should be his successor. The South Indian nobles preferred the sultan's 12-year-old son, Shah Tahir. This faction was led by a noble named Mian Manju. On the other hand, the Habashi, or African descent nobles, wanted the sultan's infant son, Bahadur Shah, to be the next ruler, with his aunt, Chan Bibi, acting as his regent. This faction was led by a noble named Ikhlas Khan. Mian Manju asked the Mughals to support his cause and Akbar's son, Murad Mirza, arrived in the Deccan with a large force. He was accompanied by the Mughal commander, Kani Kanan Abdurrahim. The Mughals laid siege to the Ahmadagar fortress and Chan Bibi led the defense of Ahmadnagar. She was seen fighting with a sword in hand and a veil covering her face. Eventually, the Mughals made an agreement with Chan Bibi. They recognized Bahadur Shah, the infant son, as the sultan with Chan Bibi acting as his regent until he came of age. The Mughals' subpar performance was blamed on the prince, Murad Mirza, who was often intoxicated during the campaign. By 1599, Murad was doing so poorly that Akbar sent another commander named Abul Fadl to help him. A few days after Abul Fadl arrived, Murad died of alcohol poisoning. After Chan Bibi died in 1600, Akbar led an army into the Deccan himself and occupied Ahmadnagar. He also annexed the kingdom of Khandesh after a brutal siege, which was just north of Ahmadnagar. With Chan Bibi gone, Malik Ambar and Raja Dakani led the resistance against the Mughals. If you haven't yet, I strongly encourage you go listen to our three-part series on Malik Ambar from late 2022. This will give you a more detailed look into this period of history. Brothers and sisters, this will conclude Season 8 of the Islamic History Podcast. Inshallah, we will return later this year with Season 9 and continue our discussion of the Mughal Empire. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. 
You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sirosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 16. This will be the final episode of this season. Before we get into today's episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhammad ibn Qasim has completed his conquest of Sindh in what is now modern day Pakistan. Qutayba ibn Muslim completed the conquest of Samarkand in Khorasan in Central Asia. And in the Hijaz, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf has convinced Caliph al-Walid to dismiss Umar ibn Abdulaziz as governor of Medina. And with that, let's get into this final episode of the Umayyad Caliphate Season 2. So we are now in the year 94 A.H., and this year was known as the year of the Fuqaha. Fuqaha is plural for faqih, and a faqih is someone who is a, an Islamic scholar of law. The reason why this year was called the year of the Fuqaha was because several Islamic scholars died during this year. This included very illustrious people such as Ali ibn al-Hussein, who was the son of Hussein ibn Ali. His nickname was Zain al-Abidin. We discussed him in the main Islamic History podcast. He was there at the Battle of Karbala when his father and so many members of his family were killed. Another scholar who died during this year was Odawa ibn Zubair, who was the brother of Abdullah ibn Zubair, whom we usually called ibn Zubair who was, of course, the son of Zubair ibn al-Awam and Asma bint Abi Bakr. So, Odwa ibn Zubair, as the grandson of one caliph, he, he was the son of Abu Bakr, as well as the son of a very highly ranked companion, that is Zubair ibn al-Awam, and the brother of a a challenger of the caliphate, that is Abdullah ibn Zubair, Odwa ibn Zubair would have been very highly respected. 
And another well-known figure who died during this year was Saeed ibn al-Musayyab. We have mentioned him in earlier episodes. He was one who was severely beaten. He was a member of the Tabi'in, first of all, or maybe the Tabi'in, Tabi'in, I can't really remember. But he was a well-known scholar in Medina, and he was severely beaten by one of the Umayyad governors of Medina, and that governor was ultimately replaced by Omar ibn Abdulaziz. So now we have new governors in the Hijaz as well. We mentioned how in the previous episode, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf had convinced Caliph al-Walid to dismiss Omar ibn Abdulaziz as governor of Medina and replace him with new governors. The reason why is that Hajjaj ibn Yusuf knew that refugees from the Peacock Army, or I should say former rebels of the Peacock Army, were seeking refuge in Mecca and Medina. And he wanted them to be returned to him so he could punish them. Al-Walid listened to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and dismissed Omar ibn Abdulaziz and replaced him with a new governor. So this new governor of Medina is a man named Uthman ibn Hayyan al-Murri. Uthman ibn Hayyan, he became the governor of Medina in around 94 AH and he immediately started expelling all of the Iraqis from Medina. So anyone, any Arab who was originally from Medina, he expelled them, basically having them arrested. Anyone who was originally from Iraq was immediately ordered to leave Medina. However, that was for the innocent people. The innocent Iraqis who had nothing to do with any sort of rebellion or anything like that, they were just expelled out of Medina. He arrested those who were suspected of dissension or conspiracy or rebellion against the Umayyad regime. All of these people who had some sort of guilt connected to them or some sort of suspicion connected to them, they were arrested, shackled, and then transported back to Iraq to be turned over to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And with that, I want to read a quote from Tariqa Tabari. So this is a khutbah that Uthman ibn Hayyan gave in Medina, basically calling out those Iraqis who were suspected of being Shia to Ali or partisans of Ali or the very first generations of the Shia, the Shiites. This is what he says, I quote, The people in Iraq are people of schism and hypocrisy. By God, they are the nest of hypocrisy and the egg that split apart and produced it. By God, I have never put an Iraqi to the test, but that I have found him who thinks most of himself to be him who says about the family of Ali ibn Abu Talib what he says. They are not in reality partisans of the family of Ali, rather they are enemies of them and of persons other than them. Because of what God desires by way of spilling their blood, I shall not, by God, be brought anyone who has given refuge to any of them, or has rented him a house, or has accommodated him, but that I shall demolish his house, and shall cause to befall him what he deserves. When Omar ibn Khattab garrisoned the territory, striving after what was good for his subjects, those who wanted to make holy war would stop by him and seek his advice, asking, Is Syria dearer to you or Iraq? And he would say, Syria is dearer to me. I think that Iraq is an incurable disease. In it, Satan has hatched his brood and they have made things difficult for me. Unquote. 